Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're talking with two people who play big roles in shaping Sacramento's arts scene and getting local artists talked about in cultural circles around California and nationwide. Liv Moe, founding director of Verge Center for the Arts, and Estela Sanchez, the founder of Soul Collective, do all this by supporting and promoting full-time and emerging artists and reeling in youth and adults with arts education opportunities. There are two major reasons why the capital city's cultural scene is on fire and why it has such a passionate community rooting on it. But they're still facing challenges. A career in the arts may seem sexy, but it's certainly not easy. Mo and Sanchez have shed sweat and tears as they've built up the arts centers and raised the six-digit figures needed to run them year-round, but their job is never done. Still, as art takes on new meanings and plays a big role in today's politically and culturally turbulent times, they're bringing Verge and Soul Collective into a brighter spotlight by putting on exciting art exhibits and helping other U.S. cities establish their own community-supported arts collectives. We're at Antiquity Midtown as we talk with Liv Moe and Estela Sanchez about the state of arts in Sacramento, what they're working on now, and what they want to happen so that the city's artists get the support they need and the recognition they deserve. Hi everyone, so tonight we're holding one of our Groundbreaker Q&A interviews in which we talk with some of Sacramento's mightiest movers and shakers, uh, people who are bringing changes and making waves and putting California's capital on the map in bold font. So backing up, our first event ever that we did back in June of 2017 was about the state of the arts in Sacramento, the state of the arts scene, how that was shaping up here, and 250 people showed up. So that was definitely a, a, first, a great kickoff uh, for starting these groundbreaker events. And it's obvious also that people here in Sacramento are passionate about the arts and supporting it. So on that panel, we talked with fairly, um, most of the panelists were artists and about the work they create why they're here in Sacramento, uh, or why they moved here or stayed here uh, to do their art, and, and the pros and cons of uh, living here and making it here as a full-time artist. And it was really interesting. And it got me to thinking of, it would be interesting to talk with a couple of people who are more behind the scenes, or I guess behind the canvas, so to speak, um, in the art scene, but are still very influential because they're supporting and promoting these artists and getting their efforts talked about around town, across California, and I guess in many ways, helping these artists get more exposure and commissions here nationally and even global. I think when I was looking at uh, bios, I saw the Venice Biennial uh, and the um, Whitney Museum, so a couple of artists have uh, gone on to bigger, better things. So I brought together two people who play big roles in shaping Sacramento's art scene to talk about their organizations, their efforts to boost the art scene, and just like with the artists we talked to, the pros and cons of doing that in Sacramento and how, it's, how, it, how they expect to see it moving forward here. Uh, so before we get started with talking with them, I did want to give a few special thanks to people who helped me make this event uh, happen. Uh, we are holding this event at the lovely space called Antiquity Midtown in Midtown Sacramento. So I want to thank uh, the two proprietors, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose back there for hosting our events. Thank you so much. Uh, and then also, it couldn't work without volunteers. 
as many nonprofits know. So Rod Rodrigo Ramirez, who's serving our drinks, uh, Danelle Brown and Lali Muradpour, who have been very helpful. Thank you very much. Um, I think Caleb Clark of uh, audio of Kickstart Audio, who you've all <laughs> seen, for recording the program and putting it into great podcasts. Thank you, Caleb. Of course, to the panelists for taking time out of their busy schedule. And of course, to you, the audience, for also taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to come. So I don't introduce the uh, panelists. I let them introduce themselves. But obviously, besides their name and their title, I always like to ask a personal question for each of them so we can see something interesting about them from, from right off the bat. So uh, I, besides your name and your current role in organization, the personal question I have for you is um, if you can tell us about a piece of art that has inspired you uh, significantly in a personal or professional manner. So I'm going to start with the woman on my immediate left. Um, hi, my name is Estella Sanchez. I'm the founder of Soul Collective. It's a center dedicated to art, culture, and activism. And um, an art piece that um, comes to mind is a large, beautiful piece that um, has these beautiful lavender and pink tones and has a side profile of a man's face. And it was an art piece that was in our first building uh, when a fire broke, down, broke out and um, the building, half of the building burnt down. And um, the, the piece survived and I purchased it from the artist and it was probably the most expensive piece at the time that I had ever bought. I think I bought it in payments um, and it's hanging in our living room and I think, you know, I see it daily and it reminds me. Who, who's the artist? His name is Miguel Bounds Perez, and he was a graffiti artist from the Bay Area. And it was his first piece that he did on canvas. Um, so it's incredibly uh, beautiful, and I feel very lucky to have it and that it survived that fire. So, oh, okay, yeah, I work. So my name is Liv Mo, and I'm the founding director of Verge Center for the Arts, which is a contemporary art center and artist residency program in Sacramento um, that was established in 2010. It's crazy how fast time flies. And I used to really hate the question about my favorite piece of art um, because it, I would just kind of get stuck in the crosshairs whenever I heard that question until I saw Christian Marclay's clock and I have now decided that it's a religious experience. It will change your life if you can go see it. I think it's the best piece of art that's ever been made. Um, it's just, it's really transformative. It's, it's the best. Where is it? So it has to be synchronized because it functions as a clock and it's a series of clips that have been collected from films, commercials, all these different things. It took him five years to create it. And when it's synchronized, it makes a 24-hour clock. And you can go see it, but and you can stay as long as you want. I saw it at MoMA. It's at the Tate right now. I've actually thought about getting tickets to London so that I can go see it. I've now seen almost 13 hours of it. Uh, I saw it for the better part of the daytime piece of it, and then I saw another segment of it from, I never got into midnight. People would wait in line for midnight. I've never seen midnight, so it's kind of my holy grail. But I've seen it from about 12.30 until 5 a.m. And it's just one of the most transformative special experiences you will ever have. If, if it's anywhere near you, make time to go see it. It's like, it's the best thing ever. All right, well thank you, thank you both. Um, so the, the 
first question I have is kind of a, another general one, but I am always curious to see how, what road people took to get to where they are today. Sometimes it's a straight shot. They know right from the beginning what they want to do, and I want to be in this I want to be in this position, I want to be in this industry, and sometimes it's more of a zigzag, and then when they look back and they think, I never would have guessed I would have been here. So I'm wondering what kind of road each of you took to get to where today, if you knew right off the bat, or it was kind of like um, a zigzag upward, and now you're like, wow, I can't believe I'm actually doing what I'm doing today. So Estelle, let's start with you. It definitely was not a straight road. Um, I was, in a program for education um, at the time, and I was uh, working with young people in Del Paso Heights, and um, I just realized there was a lot missing in our community, especially for young people of color. Um, and someone, as someone who was in education, I was trying to think back to my experience and thinking about what I would have liked to have seen um, while I was in school and what would have kept me in school. Um, so I remember I was on a break, on a lunch break, and um, I was teaching after school a drug and alcohol program. So I had a lot of young people who were going through some very heavy issues, and this was in seventh and eighth grade. And I just was having one of those days where it was very heavy to really think that here in Sacramento and the city that I grew up in, that there were young people still facing these really heavy issues and feeling like, what could I do as an adult to, that knows these things are happening? What can I do to support young people? And I remember seeing a um, empty building with a for rent sign on it. And I got the number just thinking, well, I don't know, maybe I could, I could have a space for them to go. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of, um, of Soul Collective. Um, I was, like I said, I was in a, in a education program and so I needed a project to, um, to work on and I wanted to figure out what I could do and if I could get other people, if I could come up with a collective of people who could also help me um, figure out what resources we already had in the community and figure out how we could support young people. And um, that evolved over the last 14 and a half years and it continues to evolve. And art is one of the, the tools that we begin to use as a way to empower people in our community. Liv, what about you? What kind of road? So also not straight. Um, I initially, I, so I started art school the first time in like the mid 90s. And I did it for a couple years and I made really terrible art. I don't think that any of it still exists. I really pray to God that it doesn't. Um, if it does, it's like in a closet somewhere. It's really bad. So I stopped doing art for a while, and I got actually really involved in sociology and women's advocacy. And I spent several years. Um, actually, I founded what they said at the time was the first NOW chapter at Sac City. I don't believe that. I can't imagine there wasn't a NOW chapter in the 70s. But I did that. I don't know if it's still there. I should find out. And I got into UC Davis with a sociology major, and then once I got there, I realized that wasn't really going to fulfill me the way that I hoped it would, and it wasn't what I wanted to spend the rest of my life at. And I re-investigated uh, art, and that's, I think, part of my problem when I was making really terrible art is that I didn't have the best mentors. So once I got to Davis and I started making really, well, I, I shouldn't say I made really great art. I made much better art. and. That set me on the road that I'm on now. I thought that I was going to become a university professor. That was my initial goal. And I'm really glad that I didn't continue to 
pursue that because since I have taught, I have enjoyed it, but it's not, that wouldn't have been my whole goal either. So it was actually right after I got out of grad school, I initially got to Verge because I was offered a resident studio there. And then from that, I got a gallery sitting position. And then from that, I um, started doing some of the programming. And then it just continued to evolve. So initially, it was a commercial gallery space. And then it transitioned to a nonprofit in 2010. But um, yeah, it took a lot of meandering paths. So I wanted to ask, uh, uh, following up on that question or um, about being a nonprofit and uh, resident studios, I, I feel like a for me, when I first heard about Verge or Soul Collective, I thought, oh, art gallery, but that's not the case, uh, or at least it's only one part of it. Um, there's a lot that you, each of your organizations do, so I just wondered if you could give us uh, the distinct, specific ways uh, and methods that you use um, to highlight and create art um, at Soul Collective and, and Verge. Um, so, Stella... Yeah, give us, I guess, that whole summary, but just really some distinct specific ways that you are different than just quote-unquote an art gallery. Yeah, so we, we have a art gallery space, um, and we have ex exhibits that rotate um, monthly, and we try to focus on um, political art and um, art produced by people of color and emerging artists, just knowing that it's harder for them to um, find space to exhibit their work. So really trying to carve out a space in the city that um, is supporting um, people who are doing that work. Um, we also have a, a small recording studio, so people who want to come in and record music, poetry, a podcast, um, have a space to do that. We have a printing space in the back for silk screening, block printing. Um, it's also a classroom, so we have a variety of classes that we, um, that we provide there for the community. Um, a variety of cultural um, activities and events. So tonight uh, we have the activist school running out of there. We're um, a mile away from the Capitol. So it's a really great place to be um, if you're an artist who's um, interested in using your work um, in that way. Um, and we ha we're also an all-ages venue, so we provide a platform and a place for people who um, want to come out and uh, showcase their music. We have poetry nights, we have Aztec dancing, um, we go out to South by Southwest and have a showcase there. We do Day of the Dead in Old Sacramento. Um, so we have a lot of different ways that we, um, a lot of different platforms for people to showcase their work. Yeah, I always, it feels like there's always something going on every other night at, at Soul Collective when I look on Facebook or social media. And live with, with Verge, too. Yeah, so I think my motivation in getting involved in Verge and when I first had the opportunity to start programming exhibitions there was that I think the thing that was a barrier for me in pursuing an art career, and one of the reasons that I was not really able to find myself as an artist initially was because I couldn't understand a lot of what I was looking at. And part of that, I think, has to do with education, and part of it is just how you make things accessible. And so my drive was really to figure out how to make a venue that people enjoyed and felt welcome at. So then you kind of have them in the door, and you start to trick them, and then suddenly they're having this art experience that is more challenging than maybe what people are used to, and you've kind of brought them there before they knew it. Um, 
so that was kind of everything that I've done has been to try to figure out like how is there a way that I could develop an exhibition that is appealing and kind of a almost participatory way and then suddenly you're like hey <laughs> got you thinking um, so that's kind of been like the heart of what has driven Verge and what I'm most focused on and then outside of that I just think you know around the time that Verge started there was this real dearth of resources for artists in this community so that was that was something that drove me as well as like looking at the deficiencies and what can we offer so behind those exhibition spaces, there's 35 resident studios that have 55 working artists that have low-cost studio space, um, which every time I quote that number, I'm just kind of like, wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, we have a classroom that hosts workshops, lectures, film screenings. Um, we also lease exhibition space to AXIS, which is an artist collective with 35 years of history in the region. And they have uh, 17 members, so it's a co-op model. And then we also have a printmaking facility. So the, the goal is to bring art in from outside the region that might be just a tiny bit more challenging than people are normally used to or comfortable with, and then provide as many educational resources either through working, you know, making art with emerging and career artists or teaching people that are just art interested how to have a better affinity for those mediums. Um, speaking of drive, this is a, one thing that I thought you two have in common, you know, besides obviously art uh, and supporting artists is uh, it seemed like you both had these, you were um, leading the efforts to buy the building that Soul Collective is in now and, and Verge is in now. And I guess just uh, that just seems to me for someone who's starting a, an organization would love to have my own building. Uh, that's a big challenge. Uh, so I, I remember when Soul Collective was crowdfunding and getting grants and funding, and I read about how uh, Liv, you did that with Merge. It just sounds like a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, but you did it. You you bought the building. So I was just curious about um, um, how, what kind of help you got, support you got from the city, the county, the community, and and what did you learn personally or professionally from accomplishing such a big task? Because uh, that to me was just very interesting. It just sounds like such a big deal. It takes a lot of work, but you did it. And so I was just wondering if there's anything there that you thought, you know, this really made me uh, stronger or um, in some way that effort, um, besides just having a building to have your artist and art in, did something else in a different way that you never thought? I don't know, that's a very roundabout question, but does that make sense? And if so, does anyone want to tackle that one? Estella? Um, yeah, it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Um, I think when we hit the 10-year mark, we knew that this wasn't a project that was going to end anytime soon, um, because I had started it as a project for my for my th for my thesis. I had originally went in thinking this is going to be a year-long project to basically bring the community together to identify resources and to to experiment in providing programming. Um, Ten years in, I knew. It was something else. I had turned into something completely different. And um, I think any time that you put that much time and love and energy into something, you want to really make sure that it continues and to take care of it. So I think our board and our overall collective really begin to think about the legacy um, of the organization. And, um, you know, after 10 years, you also get to see the impact of, of 
of what this space has done. So we saw youth that were in our program turn into adults, and we saw the impact that um, the programming had had. So we understood, um, I think at that time, that it was important to continue to have this type of space in the city. Um, and so we really began to think about uh, long-term um, you know, purchasing uh, of the space. And so um, the process was, was incredibly difficult. Um, and we almost thought we weren't going to get through it. How much did you need to raise, or how much total did the building cost, or what kind of big dollar figure were you looking at? So the building itself was around 460000 which um, at the time um, that we put in an offer, an offer went in for $50,000 more than what we had put in. And so the family had to decide who they were going to give it to. And our the owner um, had passed away, and so his sons were taking care of that. And they were really incredible. Um, their father really believed in what we were doing, and they were really incredible to really honor his um, wishes to sell us the building. Um, and yeah, but that was a really difficult um, moment there where we thought we're not going to be able to get this building. And um, we had to fundraise, so we had a um, an online um, video that we put out, and we really tried to explain to, to the community that we wanted to lay down roots with this building and that we wanted to ensure that there would be a space um, that was dedicated to art, culture, and activism in the city. So um, we did get a lot of support from a lot of different people. And when it came down to it, it was really just connections. It was one person who saw the video in Los Angeles, who took the time to go downstairs to show it to his coworker, who made a call to someone in San Francisco who reached back out to us and said, hey, we have a program that could help you get a loan for the building. So it's really interesting how things work. Um, and it, that's literally what it was. We had been denied by three different banks who didn't understand how to work with nonprofits and a nonprofit model. But it literally took a person to take the time to start the conversation that then traveled and um, we were able to get a loan and we actually I think went through the same um, organization to uh, get the loan the Northern California Community Loan Fund um, who does work with organizations like ours and specifically they look at supporting uh, organizations in areas that are being gentrified and I think for for us, I grew up in Sacramento, born and raised in Sacramento, and I grew up in Oak Park, and I knew that if we didn't get it now, in 10 years, the next generation was not going to be able to afford the building or any other space, and I knew how hard it was for us to hold that space. Um, at one point, I had three jobs to be able to pay the rent and hold that space, so I knew that if uh, the next generation was going to continue to do it, we had to take a bold step um, towards ownership in order to ensure that. And um, yeah, it's an, it's an incredible neighborhood to be in. And um, we saw empty buildings get filled next to us. So we also just saw the, the power of, um, of ownership and laying down roots. Yeah, and the building's on, is it 21st uh, or 21st Street? 21st Just Street. south of Broadway. Yes. yes. Well, congratulations. Thank how you. About, how about you, Lib? So I think my experience in buying the building, it taught me that uh, I'm capable of more than I thought I was. Because I think that 
one of the things there's this really kind of cliche this kind of dumb cliche about artists about how they're these free spirits and they're kind of ditzes and they you know like they're you can't contain a man you know and you know we both went through the same process it was insane like you know the final application for that loan was I mean ours was hundreds of pages long and it took us seven months to draft it I mean it was just like one of the craziest heavy lifting projects I've ever done and the most I've used my brain in my entire life. And so that was something coming out on the other side of that. I just kind of thought, whoa, like I can write a business plan, you know, and it's like a real business plan that holds water when it's done. Um, so that was that was kind of mind boggling in itself. Um, but then also there was just all these crazy contacts. And we actually got connected through the NCCLF because um, one of our board members, Carlin Nafee, was friends with someone who um, is also part of a community investment lending firm, and they did farms, like they give loans to farms in Northern California. And he said, hey, you know, there's this, because we got our loan, I think maybe like three years before you got your loan, and they were getting their chops busted because they were founded to give initially cultural loans to groups in Northern California, and their board discovered that they hadn't given a loan to a arts nonprofit east of San Francisco. I think that like Berkeley or Oakland was the furthest east in over 15 years. So it was sort of like, hey, you know, it's not like there isn't anything that happens on the other side of, you know, whatever, the bay, basically. So that really also helped them, because now they're all over Sacramento and looking at what we're doing here and considering other projects. And Dan calls me all the time to say, like, hey, do you know anybody else doing something cool? So I think they kind of figured out, like, hey, you know, the world doesn't end after, <laughs> after Richmond. You could go past the Carquina Strait and still find arts and culture. Uh, so that, that, yeah, that leads into my next question because I was wondering about support, community support uh, that you got for that. And then just in general, the support you get um, from Sacramento uh, for embracing its art scene. And that was one thing that stuck with me with this event that we did, the first one we did, um, that we ever did on the state of the art scene. And there was a couple of comments from artists saying, you know, it, Sacramento has an art scene that exists beyond just every second Saturday of the month. And people need to realize that. Uh, but that was like three years ago. So I was wondering, you know, um, we've had Art Hotel and Art Street. Those are two big things. And um, obviously we have your two organizations. But I was just wondering in your view in the past, say, three to five years, you know, um, Sacramento embracing its art scene these days, um, it, what's working in getting people to embrace art, especially financially, and um, if if what needs to be done, um, in your view, for more support and embracing from the, the community? Who would like to start? <laughs> Let's start with Estella and then Liv. Um, what is working? That's a good question. I mean. I think I have I, I have hope in the younger generation and seeing that um, we're helping cultivate um, young people with spaces like ours who appreciate art and who want to have art experiences. Um, so I'm hopeful that that's working in terms of really um, cultivating um, future art buyers and future art supporters. Um, in terms of what can be done, I think just in general, overall in the city, there needs to be um, 
more value placed on art. I think we forget to connect um, creativity and um, art in the overall landscape of um, of the city. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure it's the same with Live. Uh, running a nonprofit, an arts nonprofit, we get called and we get emails all the time to do free work, to connect artists who can do free work, photographers, videographers, and so. Um, art is one of those things that people often feel that it sh should be for free. We forget to value it. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we can start doing as a city is really, um, really promoting the payment to artists and creatives and really understanding how valuable that is um, in the city. And I don't think that we're doing that um, I think that we're talking about it and we're trying to figure it out as a city, but we don't see that even the organizations and the movements that are pushing for the arts are the f still asking artists to come in and provide their work for free. So I think that's, that's you know, it, it's, it's uh, giving the wrong message to, to artists that your work isn't valuable. And so I think as a city, if we get to a point where we know that just like in any other profession, you wouldn't come out and ask someone to do something for free, you take that same approach when it comes to the art. Like we shouldn't ask artists, videographers, creators to come out and do um, work for free. I, I tend to do a lot of uh, creative consulting for free and I just started a consulting business because I realized like, wow, I'm like, I'm a full on consultant, like on a regular, I curate events for people, you know, because they call. And so I realized like, I, I really need to help people understand that this is a valuable resource and that, um, that we need to start paying for it in order to make it sustainable um, in the city and in order to encourage young people to want to do this as a career field because if they're seeing all of the artists and creatives that they know not being able to pay their rent or struggling that's not a field that they're going to want to go into all right Liv. yeah and i think so the the thing that has been plaguing my work schedule for the last week and a half has been the news recently that the next budget that's going to get approved by the city uh, and actually I'm going to be sending out a call to action I will send it to you and you can share it with everyone in this room uh, they're proposing cutting arts funding in the city back to 2007 levels that's absolutely absurd what are the do you have a dollar figures for that or percentage uh, so it's under nine hundred thousand dollars it's like it's not, I think it's under seven hundred thousand dollars yeah, it's like $400,000. I mean, it's just disgusting. So we've made it through the recession. All of us have been, you know, putting up our own resources, bootstrapping, doing everything we can to make this a cool city. It's a destination city. Everybody's going to move here, you know, which is great. But then, oh, heaven forfend that we fund the things that make this a cool destination city. So, you know, Measure U just passed. We've made it through this terrible economy. They're about to approve a new city budget. And they're talking about reducing us back to 2007, which, you know, for like for the two of us who have done all this stuff, bought a building, done all these things to prove our viability, then it's like, hey, guess what? Maybe in the future years, your grants are going to go back to what they were 10 years ago, which was like so small. I mean, it was better than not having a grant, but it just says like we have no value for what you're doing. 
So when you do see these big things about we're going to be the next Austin and oh South, you know, I was at this event recently and um, I can't remember if it was Daryl or who it was somebody was like, you know, South by Southwest is going on right now. How do we become the next Austin? And you just think our spending on the arts is a dollar less per capita than Austin. This is not rocket science. And, and also, in a $1.1 billion annual city budget, $2.2 million for arts, which is what half of a percentage of the TOT tax used to be, that's what SMAC used to get, the transit occupancy tax, now I'm getting really nerdy, but you know that's like 0.002% of the city's annual operating budget. So it's just, it's like, it's such a screw you that I can't even begin to unpack it, you know? So <clears throat> anyway, we've all started our calls to action and our letters and everybody's getting mobilized, but um, it just, it, it's one of the great heartbreaks I feel like for Sacramento is that there's this cool resource here and there's the smallest amount of investment for the city percentage wise would make such a huge dividend. Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> well, definitely we'll, uh, we'll explore that, uh, uh, that news. So, all right. Um, well, I'm going to open up to questions at the mic. So if you want to line up there at the mic and ask questions while I ask mine, uh, please do. Um, uh, you know, one thing I was going to ask, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to jump to one question I had about gentrification, because that seems to come up so much and uh, that term in the questions in the in the panel discussions we have about housing, about transit and so forth, and definitely about art. Um, so this is I'm going to try and condense this into a long, into a, a very short question, but um, it seems like uh, art is a double-edged sword when it comes to gentrification and 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 how it's considered. Uh, you know, obviously, you you support local artists, you help them get the work and the financial support they need to stick around in the area that they are, and at the same time, it seems like a local arts nexus creates a you know an excitement a hub a, a, a cool vibe that draws other people um, that maybe aren't in the arts and they have money and they can rent or buy in that area and that can uh, either rise you know it's a rising tide or but rising tide of rents and and home prices um, as people move to this cool up-and-coming part of town but then that coolness um, in terms of the artists and the people creatives who live there are priced out. Um, and then I think for many of you in the art community, just recently, or, or I guess I've been reading about Boyle Heights, a, a neighborhood in Los Angeles, um, that uh, once art galleries started coming in there because it was inexpensive and still close to downtown, the people who live there, or a lot of people in Boyle Heights were like, we don't want you. You're going to create problems in terms of driving us who live here out. Um, and so they, I guess they forced a lot of art galleries and art, uh, um, yeah, a lot of art galleries and whoever's going to move there to say, okay, we're, we're leaving. So I thought that was very interesting. So I guess the point of my question is in terms of, you know, art and gentrification and how it, um, you know, you financial support, but also it draws maybe uh, other aspects of, you know, financial issues. How do you view that, um, in terms of your role and, and what can what can Verge or Soul Collective do in terms of um, you know supporting artists and keeping them where they are uh, and bringing that cool factor to whatever aspect, but making sure no one's displaced? Or is that just something that's 
beyond what you can do. Is that something that you ever think about or have addressed in the past? I'm just curious, because arts and gentrification seem to sometimes go together whether you like it or not. Estella. It, it's super complex. I mean, um, art is used um, by developers throughout the U.S. as a tool for gentrification, going into low-income communities, um, enticing artists and creatives to, to do things and making it a cool space, and then um, often, uh, you know, pricing out the folks who, who are doing that work and, um, you know, low-income low people. So it, it is used as a tool for gentrification. Um, and in Sacramento, we've seen that happen um, in some areas. I think we have, we have a really interesting community in Sacramento. Um, Boyle Heights in Los Angeles, they, you know, a lot of the communities in Los Angeles are not playing around. They mobilized and made sure that that didn't happen. I think in Sacramento, we have, um, we have a very close-knit community and it's really small and I think people try to work things out and in Oak Park you saw gentrification happen. I grew up and was born and raised in Oak Park and so I saw that community completely shift and change. Um, we were doing art events and activities in Oak Park and continu continue to do so and I think the developing of a community um, is an inevitable, you know, for the most part. And I think one of the things that when I think about gentrification is to really think is are the are the developments that are happening, are they making an effort to include everyone? And I think when they are and when we can begin to have those conversations that the new park or the new restaurants are welcoming spaces for everyone in the community, that they're helping employ people, that they're helping bring up the wages of the folks who live there um, so they can continue to live there. Those are things that we really need to look at locally um, so that we aren't finding ourselves in, in, in situations like Boyle Heights where people are getting physically assaulted and you know things are things are getting really difficult there because people are they understand what's happening they know that low income mostly people of color are being pushed out of neighborhoods as they're developing and so in sacramento i think um we have an opportunity of making sure that as communities are developing, that we're incl being inclusive and including everyone, and that we're bettering communities, but we're making them welcoming spaces for everyone, that we're employing people who are in the neighborhood, that we're looking at home ownership for people who haven't had home ownership opportunities in the past. So we do a class called, along with um, one of our, our partners, we're hosting it at, at Soul Collective, it's called Hacking Home Ownership. And it's really for folks in Oak Park and different communities that are being gentrified to be able to learn the tools of home ownership so that if your community's um, you know, developing, you, you have an opportunity to also own a home. Um, and that you understand the process. And I think even for us, as far as like the owning the building, we're, we're, I couldn't afford Oak Park. I actually tried to purchase the church that I grew up going to in Oak Park, and I got 
priced out by a developer. And I met with him, and I don't think he's figured out what he wants to do with the building yet. I, you know, we try to talk to him about what we wanted to do. We try to purchase it from him, and he's sitting on it because he's going to make money from it. And he's not from our community. He's not from Sacramento. So he doesn't have kind of that personal attachment to what's going to happen there. Um, so it is really difficult. Um, you know, it is happening and does affect us in Sacramento. Yeah, I don't, it's hard because for what we're doing, there's not, I mean, even the NCCLF, after we bought our building, one of the first times they came to visit, they started asking how the improvement of our building was affecting the surrounding properties. So even though they're trying to look at, you know, providing resources to communities that they're going into and investing in, they also kind of have this sort of like, hey, because they're essentially a bank, you know? So like, hopefully this is, driving your property value up too, you know? So it's this kind of like, it's the curse of being an arts group or an, you know, an arts community center or an arts center or gallery. Like you go into places cause that's where you can afford. And then, you know, we have had such circumstances before we had a permanent space where there were some people, there were a couple different developers that had offered us places that we could have improved. And then we would have had to have gone as soon as they rented it. And then, but we were improving it at our expense. And I remembered thinking like, why would I do that? Like, why would I raise money to do that so that I could leave in eight months, you know? So it's like, I mean, I think that for Verge, definitely employing people and making sure that we're providing opportunities to people in the community and we're helping, you know, we're being very mindful of, of who we include and then also, um, we've really been helping toe the line on making sure that people get paid for their services. And that's even, you know, come into play in terms of like city organizations and things like that from time to time. Because we've backed out of, you know, events and other things if the people that were getting involved or the, the artists that were being employed weren't getting something for their services. But it's hard, I mean, I don't, this is something that I struggle with all the time. I know, I know you have great questions out there. There's always someone at every discussion that has a fantastic question, so I know one of you has one. But while you decide to go to the mic, I do have another um, question about another term that comes up uh, with our, especially a lot these past couple of years, activism. And um, I feel like in these politically charged times, you know, art seems to play a big role, or maybe has taken on a, a different role uh, in expressing opinions, inspiring activism. And uh, so I was wondering what, uh, for you two, how you've approached art as activism in your roles, especially in the past couple of years. Um, if anything has changed uh, in the way that you approach that, Estella? Yeah, I mean, I think art has always been, it's always played a critical role in, in, in social movements, social justice movements, always. If you look at history, like artists have always, creatives have always led the way and, and have always spoken through their, wor their work and have used art as a medium to have social commentary, political commentary on things that are happening. So I think that's always been there. For our organization, I mean, when we started it, it was art, culture, and activism. So it's been for, for the last 14 and a half years that has been at the heart and the core of the organization. And so, um, yeah, we use it in a, a variety of ways. I think in the past it was really looking at how many of us as children of immigrants kept our, our cultural identity through the arts and made sure that we were visible. 
And I think now more than ever, that's really important with the, the political climate that we have, that that visibility that we're here. I'm wearing a Mexican weepil that, you know, I go out and I have my braids, that I meet people, that people understand that we're not threatening, that we're not all of these different things that you're now hearing again in the media. And that I also grew up hearing, you know, as a kid, because when, you know, in the 80s, it was the same climate. It's the climate I grew up in, what we're in now. So, our space was meant to have a safe space for people to be able to express their culture and to really learn through the arts and to have an open space for everyone else in the community to be invited in and to experience that and to get to understand it and know it um, so that we did have a safer community. So we continue to, to do that and, and use it in that way. We do the, the huge Day of the Dead um, festival partnering with the Sacramento History Museum. And that has been really beautiful to be able to um, to have a, a festival, a celebration in the place where our, our city was born um, and where different cultures and communities have always um, come together. <clears throat> um, Different communities have come together and have learned and have learned to co-live with each other to be able to have a festival like that in that place where historically in our city that was taking place because of the river. So um, it's been really um, amazing to be able to use it in that way. So we that's our form of activism. Um, and lately, in the last past years, um, we have really... Um, promoted um, the, the ability to do art activations and partnering with different regional and statewide um, groups who are coming to Sacramento, who are coming to the Capitol to do advocacy work. We get hired by a variety of different work, different folks to do art activations. We uh, open up our space for groups to come in and to be able to use the space before coming to the Capitol and doing advocacy work or rallies or marches. And so our space is really, um, has become a space that's known statewide as a space that can be used. And so again, ownership um, you know, especially there has been strategic so close to the capital for groups to be able to um, organize and um, use the tools that we have for art making to um, have a visual impact when you go out to the capital. Liv, what about you? I, the thing that continues to strike me constantly, and I know that it shouldn't, um, but the thing that I'm just always disappointed by and um, sort of impressed by when I see them in headlines is that it's still a radical act to see a person of color or a woman as a curator or a leader in a major museum. And, you know, some of the controversies that have happened over the last even just year and a half in terms of um, Helen Molesworth leaving MOCA, which I thought was such a huge loss. That's in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. um, and part of it was because they looked back at five years of their annual dinner and the artist that they, uh, you know, they always celebrate a different artist at their annual gala fundraiser. They were all white men. And so there was a protest amongst some of the supporters and the artists, really, that were supporting that institution. And there was a lot of behind-the-scene politics that went on with this whole thing. And Helen Molesworth was one of the casualties of this um, whole argument, this debate. 
And, you know, she curated one of my favorite shows over the last two and a half years, the Carrie James Marshall show at MoCA. So I just, you know, that to me, I just think to myself, like, if you look at the population, you look at the people around us, you see what this city is, and you think, where is the representation for more than just white dudes? No offense to white dudes. You guys are great. But... You know, there's actually been times where people have said, well, when do you go back? Actually, last year, this was crazy. So when I was working on the Yoshi Sakai installation, uh, there was an, an art or a, a journalist that was asking me, they were writing a piece about it. They wanted to know when we were going to go back to normal art. And, you know, I tried to play it dumb. So I'm like, I don't understand. Because I wanted this person to come out and tell me, like, what does that mean? Because what it, what it frames it as is, well, you know, when you get back to the white guy, the guy that's going to make a big sculpture or an abstract painting, can't, you know, just go back to the normal stuff. So that, it's funny, like it, when I first started doing this, when Verge reopened in 2014, I shouldn't say first started doing this, but first started doing this as a nonprofit, we sat down and we said, what are our priorities? Because we're attracting shows from outside, you know, so we have all these different things we can approach. So how do we winnow down the strategy so that we know what it is we're going to focus on? And I started to look at the region and what our galleries and museums are promoting. And I thought, there's a giant hole here. When you go to the Crocker, as much as I love the Crocker, and, you know, you've got an artist on the top floor, a white male regional artist, and then you have an internationally known female artist who's in that little tiny carpeted gallery on the floor below, what does that say to a class? What does that say to a kid, to a student? The guy upstairs is important. The woman in the little carpeted room, yeah, she's a, you know, also ran, not as important. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of conversations that I think we need to start thinking about and saying, like, God damn it, Judy Chicago should have been upstairs. Sorry. I mean, that was like, what? So, you know, these are the sorts of things that I just think I have the ability to do that, <laughs> you know? And I can say, like, these are the artists that we're going to put in our main gallery and we're going to promote the crap out of and we're going to make sure people are going to come see. And so... You know, I had a moment, like I'm sure a lot of people did after the election, where I thought, well, maybe I just hang up my spurs and, like, I know how to fundraise. I'm good at that. I could do that and do that for politics because, like, the world's ending, basically, <laughs> which is how I felt. And then I thought about it and I thought, okay, yeah, I could do that. But, like, I also have this platform and I had this thing I worked really hard for and what can I do with that? And this is something I can do with that. So... Add yeah, something um, because just in here and you it reminds me just that with art we're able to have these conversations these difficult conversations around white supremacy and patriarchy because that's what we're talking about when we you know there's subtleties of it it's not just out in your face someone a neo-nazi with your you know with signs or punching people there's these very subtle messages when you have a white male um, like she said, and, and a female artist, we're talking about patriarchy and, and these subtle messages about white supremacy that a white male artist is better than uh, artists of color. And they play out in these very subtle ways that we don't realize we're affected by. 
I'm affected by it, even as a person of color. I'm Mexican, and you know, Mexicans are mixed heritage. I'm 51% I'm European, African, and, uh, and indigenous, you know, based on my DNA, right? So I grew up with these notions of white supremacy as well. And so one of the really beautiful things about art is that it allows us to have these really deep and difficult conversations in a beautiful way um, before it turns into a huge issue, you know, out in the community that we're able to address some of these things and talk about them. So thank you, because you just reminded me, you know, that's, that's why art is so powerful. That is why it's needed. That's why it shifts and changes the landscape and the culture of a community. All right, we have a question at the mic. Yes, hi, um, Estella, hi Liv, it's really nice to hear from you guys. You're both really inspiring to me. My name is Erin Dorn. I actually work at the Crocker Art Museum, but I wanna say I'm not here as a representative of the Crocker, I'm here as an individual. But my question is really about the role of museums um, in the local art scene here in Sacramento, or just more generally, how the museum can play the role of support to the local art scene, to local artists, to this conversation that you guys were just having about addressing these issues of white supremacy, of the patriarchy. What can the museum do? I know that for a lot of kids, the museum, the art museum is like their first exposure to art. Um, how can we be raising the next generation to support local art, to support an arts culture in general, and to begin to have these important conversations that art can bring up? So I, I totally welcome your comments about how museums can play a role in this. Liv? I really want on this one. So um, something that I've had a really hard time unpacking over the last couple years, um, partially triggered by the Me Too movement, which just got me thinking more about like what we value, what we buy, what we consume. I started thinking about patriarchy and how um, most museum collections are established. So if you think about it, you've got, um, you've got patrons, as all of us do. All of us have people that donate to us, and that's what drives what we're doing. Those people have tastes and they have interests, like all of us do. They develop collections, and those collections get donated to museums. So it sounds really kind of dumb in a way, but it wasn't until about a year ago that I kind of had this like, what moment, and I realized that all these things that I was studying as an undergrad and worshiping and thinking about were part of a larger construct that were what I was able to see. So they, I mean, a lot of them are amazing and they're really great and I understand why they're in textbooks, but they weren't maybe necessarily better or worse than some other things. It's just that those were in those textbooks because that's what was collected and donated and put in our major institutions and written about. So once you step back, like the, the fact that Carl Andre still gets major museum retrospectives, like it just makes me spitting mad. Like if no one has to look at him again, I will be super happy, you know? But that's patronage. And the fact that I spent all this time in school talking about the brilliance of Carl Andre, even though he pushed his wife out a window and, was, and she was a way better artist, Ana Mendieta, look her up, super cool. Um, we have her on view now. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I really think. So I think that for museums, I understand that, like, we're not going to be able to suddenly, like, you know, unravel all this overnight, certainly. But I think that we can be a lot more conscious about how we talk about things and who we bring through those museums and how we approach the collection and, and be sensitive to the fact that those patrons are who makes those museums happen. And I have a lot of respect for that and I, I really value that too because they're, but for the grace of patrons, go me. But, but how do you balance those two things? And I think that that's, it really, it's like I said, it gets back to like, even just thinking about placement and who do you put in the big, most beautiful space and who do you put in the little space downstairs, you know? I mean, that's what it gets to for me. Estella. So shout out to the Crocker and to the Sacramento History Museum because I think they've been doing an incredible job of recognizing that there's an issue and then trying to figure that out and working with folks in the community to figure that out. I remember about 10 years ago I started working with the Crocker. I came in as, as someone was leaving and we did um, a uh, Cuban night, a film um, about Cuba and we brought in a Cuban hip hop uh, artist and DJ and I remember the nervousness uh, that there was going to be a lot of people of color in the building just to be up front. Um, the young woman who was... I didn't work there then just to say it. Yeah <laughs> and, I rem <laughs> and I remember folks being like how, how, what are our patrons going to think? And so the, there was a line for the patrons to come in and I remember the young lady telling me, well, I think we're gonna open up the back door just so that it's not, you know, it doesn't get too, and I could tell she was nervous. That night went beautifully. And I remember Lyle saying, this is what we want to have in the museum. And I've been working closely with the Crocker for the past 10 years. So it's come a long way from that. And I mean, now on any given night, you'll see people of a color and everyone is in there, you know, it represents, it's reflective of our community. You can go in there and, and feel good, but it wasn't like that before. And I think the museum knew that. And so they were really looking at figuring out how to have events that were more inclusive and more diverse and that, um, understanding that also patrons were changing. There's a lot of studies showing that the initial patrons were dying out, that um, they weren't going to be there, and then understanding that they needed to cultivate a new audience. And so, um, you know, I think 10 years ago, the Crocker realized that, and we've been working with them ever since in a variety of different projects and programs, and have helped bring even young people in there. Um, and more diverse communities. And same with the Sacramento History Museum um, with Day of the Dead event. Um, I, I remember we just had a meeting the other day and I remember telling them, I remember when uh, local native tribes were protesting gold rush days because we're not thinking about how, are we thinking about everyone in our community when we're celebrating one piece of our history? And when we do our Day of the Dead event, it was saying, you know, it's been, I think, eight years now, something like that. Um, we have local native leaders offering sacred song in that museum and seeing it as a place where, like, the, our ancestors' belongings are here rather than, like, something else, right? So we've come a long way, but that was very intentional relationship building with the community that someone in those places had to advocate for until it became the norm. Because initially it wasn't. 
And um, our Day of the Dead even is bigger than Gold Rush Days now. So I, they were like, you know, our board is super excited about this event. And, you know, eight years ago it was like, oh, we don't know about this event. And now that's like the largest event they have. So someone had to be very intentional there and had to advocate to open the door and had to take a risk because it was something that hadn't been done before. So I would just say encourage, you know, folks in museums to continue to be risk takers that if this hasn't been done before, but you know that it's not representing the entire community, to be okay saying, um, you know, when we're making decisions, there's not, you know, it's the people at the table don't represent all of our community. There's women missing at the table. There's people of color missing at the table to just make sure that the decision makers reflect our overall community. Thank you so much. And thank you for the great question, Erin. Um, so I guess we're gonna we're gonna wind it on down. But I had a question for you too. Um, Liv, you had mentioned mentorship and when you were an, um, a student at UC Davis and just the lack of mentors. But I feel like in, in your roles, you both are mentors too for your artists um, um, that work with you. So I, I was wondering in terms of like, you know, mentoring seems very valuable. And that, that kind of ties into, you know, how you lift up the artists that um, work with you and are, um, you know, under your roof, so to speak. You know, how do you see mentorship and, and where do you, where do you see your artists going? And I guess if you can give us some examples of um, uh, artists that have just really gone a long way since you've known them and, and you've worked with them, uh, and, and where you know what their road has been and where they are now. Um, so you know, and how you can take you know a little bit of like, yeah, that, I helped with that as a mentor. So uh, Estella. I mean, you know, in 14 years, there's a lot of people who walk through the doors. Um, one person that comes to mind is uh, a young lady that came into our programs at 15 and had been identified as a gang member because she was wearing Nike Cortez and had a red on, which at the time and probably still is one of the policies that uh, schools look at to identify people as gang members. Um, she wasn't. And she came into our program because of that. Um, and she's worked at the Crocker, and she's uh, our program director. She's 30 years old, and she's incredible. She's an incredible um, community leader and artist. Um, and I'm really grateful that our space was there. And then another person, uh, Sean Berner, you talked about Art Hotel and um, Art Street. And Sean was 18 or 19 when I met him. We did a art shows, one of his, his first early on art shows at a, at a community center. I took him with me to Puerto Rico and through the Caribbean on a cultural exchange tour. He met all of the different, you know, his collective of artists, TYS, traveled with them. Um, and now he, he and his um, partner, Frankie, are mentoring my 18-year-old kid. Um, they're actually today, right now, working on a, a mural together. Um, so that all works <laughs> beautifully, I think, in the city. And I was mentored by a lot of different people. Um, a lot of love to Dr. Leela Jacobs. Um, but I had a lot of mentors, and so I definitely know that having a mentor is incredibly important, especially in the arts. And also just for young people of color, um, we realize that we don't have a lot of people in the city who are successful doing the arts, so it's important to be able to show people what has worked and what hasn't. Lib. And you also, you did get, collect one more question in the audience, too. 
Yes, that's next. Um, you know, so I think it's funny, like the, the artists that have come out of Verge that have gone on to other things... I mean, I guess, I don't know that, though, there's maybe a couple that I can take credit for, but um, I think that more than anything, what we try to do with the artists, especially the artists in residence, is encourage them to embrace influences from the outside and try to, because there's kind of this whole thing about, like, you know, local art and only local art and that kind of thing. And I actually think, you know, like, for instance, one of our um, resident artists, Daniel Trejo, we had Adam Miller from The Pit, and Adam is originally from Sacramento. He's gone on to form this incredibly influential gallery in Los Angeles. And he curated a show for us, not this past summer, but the summer before. And when Adam was in Sacramento, he did studio visits, and he did a studio visit with Daniel. And then Daniel ended up getting curated into an exhibition in Los Angeles. And, you know, Daniel is very much, you know, embraces outside artists and curators and ideas, and he wants to kind of have that synergy of, like, local and outside. Um, but, you know, that's kind of one of the, the many examples that I've pointed to of, like, that's an example, you know, that's an opportunity. That's the benefit of having outside art and outside influences coming in. Because um, sometimes, like, our main gallery space focuses on traveling exhibitions, and that's something that we get our chops busted about sometimes, just because you know, you have this big, beautiful gallery. Why isn't it only local artists that you're showing? Um, but I don't really feel like that's my role. I feel like my role is to provide people with a voice from outside that they wouldn't get otherwise. Um, and then through our youth programs, I mean, there's so many stories that we've had through that program. Last year, we actually, um, we had a student who had been taking our summer camps and we scholarship as many positions in those camps as we can. And we had this young woman who had started out as a student. Then we started a YAM program, Youth Art Mentor. And <laughs> I love that name. It's funny, YAM. But we kind of partially did it because of her, because she was so neat. And we could tell that we had given her community and that she really needed that space. And so we kind of worried, like, what's going to happen when the next summer comes? She's too old to be in the program. So we made, in, made her into a YAM. Um, so then she did a summer as a yam, and at the end of last summer, she got hired. So it's really cool, you know? She started out in this foster program. Her foster mom was a little bit weird, so, you know, we were, like, helping her out, getting her lunch, all the stuff. And, and so it was just, it was really, you know, there's times when I sometimes think about the people's lives that we touch that I don't even realize because we have so many programs going on and so many things. And then last year when she got hired, to you know work as a um, artist or a teaching assistant really for a youth group a youth camp I just thought holy crap you know this woman like she's about to become an adult and go into the world and we helped her get life experience this is awesome you know so anyway it's just it's kind of a funny thing all right we have one question at the mic let's make that we'll make that our last unfortunately sure uh, thank you, Vanessa, for some of the questions that you've asked. Um, they've really resonated with some of the experiences I've been going through recently. Um, my name is Jade. Um, I'm with Talent Magazine's magnum opus, and then I co-founded a nonprofit um, called Help Fight Poverty. And since August, I've been thrown more um, in an activism role um, with the leadership um, of our building. And I'm finding that it's a fine line. How do you know when you're pushing the envelope too far 
um, with the activism to where it doesn't burn um, bridges in the community. But at the same time, like raise awarenesses for um, white supremacy and women's rights and our arts community. How do you find um, that balance? And how do you find your voice through the process? Yeah, that's true. I guess like um, speaking out, um, but in, and also I guess small town, don't burn bridges. You know, what's the balance you find or do you just, do you even see it that way? Um, it is a very fine line and Sacramento is a really small town. I've, born and raised here. I've seen people do it in a lot of different ways. I've seen people burn bridges and I've seen how their funding has been cut. I've seen what happens behind the scenes. I've been privy to those conversations and can make the connection between them making their voice heard. Um, I've also seen those folks suffer, yet it's changed how we've operated in the city. And I can make the direct connection to what people have done that now has brought funding to communities of color in the arts in the city because someone had the courage to loudly voice that our funding was not equitable. And now we've changed our policies around that, but that person suffered from that and their organization suffered from that. So it is a fine line and, um, you know, I'm always careful not to burn ridges because we live here. You know, we're neighbors, and, and people aren't always ready for change. So sometimes it's, you know, through the arts, that's what we do. It's like, let's have these conversations. Let's have these, you know, let's bring up these difficult issues and understand that we're all learning, like we're all trying to figure it out. You know, at the end of the day, most of us want the same thing, and we're trying to figure out how to get there. And so... Um, you know, I want a community I can live in. I don't want to fight. I don't want my. I don't want to have put my myself or my family in a place that I have to be scared about. You know, um, and so I think, you know, in doing that work, it's important to 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 name it, to say it. You know, we don't have to ha be angry about it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm a 43-year-old woman. If I was like angry all the time about the inequities in the world and about you know the what I face as a person of color on a regular basis like I'd have a hard time just living you know so I've I've had to find that balance within myself and I have to come at people with love and understanding knowing that it's going to take time like like as like my existence you know in order for me to be here like so much has had to happen you know, as a person who, who are, are, you know, are, we were colonized in Mexico and my mom and dad had to immigrate here eventually. Like everything that my ancestors have gone through for me to be here has been incredible. So I see what we do as like this long, long road of fighting for, for survival and for equity and for cultural, um, the ability to just be ourselves. So I try to remember that, that it's a, it's a long-term, um, it's a long-term fight for us to get to a place where we're living in a place that's safe and, 
equitable for everyone. It's not going to happen overnight, and we have to just, re you know, we have to be patient about it. A lot of people have been fighting for a really long time to make things better, and so we just have to do whatever we can, um, yeah, and maintain that balance. Thank you. Liv. Well, I think, I mean, I think probably for both of us, we have this balance of being involved with people in the city and kind of having inside conversations and then also seeing the community side of it. So I've learned how far I can push. And there's places where that's unfortunately not that far. I wish it wasn't, but it's not. And so I've had to kind of figure out how I can be effective without alienating somebody, in which case then I'm not effective at all. And, and then I just get pigeonholed and I'm no longer part of the conversation. And I'm trying to, you know, I don't want that to happen. So I think um, there are some places where I just feel like, you know, whether it's somebody that I'm advocating for or if it's a position that I've been put in, there's certain places I recognize that it's just like I'm not going to be pushed any further. And I feel very, you know, um, I have strong convic convictions about whatever it is that I'm trying to defend. And so in those places, I, you know, I feel very solid, especially now I feel like I'm better about defending my boundaries because I do so much fundraising and I have to spend a lot of time with people and I'm getting a lot better about knowing when to take care of myself. Um, but I think it's just speaking out on a larger level is just really difficult and knowing how to be a, a tool as opposed to, you know, a tool for change as opposed to a casualty, frankly, um, is a really difficult balancing act. Thank you for Thank the great question, Jade. Thank and, you, uh, I appreciate that. I have, one, I have one last question, that'll be the final question. Um, I guess going forward, um, you know, what's, what's next for both of you and your organizations? Because uh, I was reading, I think, in some past Q&As with you, Estella, particularly the names of various cities outside of Sacramento came up, LA, Portland, Detroit, uh, the New York area. So it sounds like Soul Collective may be going out. And then for for you, Liv, I had already mentioned, I read, you know, Venice by being Biennale and uh, Whitney and artists going outward. So I guess like in terms of uh, spreading the influence of what you do at your organizations, what are, what are future plans that you can tell us? Who wants to start? Estella. Um, yeah, so um, we're in the process of really thinking about what's past, what comes after the collective founders and the overall collective, like who's gonna be there, what is that gonna look like? So we're really thinking ahead. So um, writing down our model, um, restructuring um, what we've done, you know, over the last 14 and a half years um, so that it makes sense for the next generation that picks it up. Also uh, looking at architectural plans for the building to see what's possible. Um, you, it can go up, you know, a couple of floors. So we would love to have um, eventually or at least leave the plans for the next generation to have housing and office spaces. So housing for art, artists, activists, educators to be able to do that type of work in the city and to have affordable housing. We know that that's one of the reasons why people leave the city. Um, also to be able to have meeting spaces and offices for smaller groups and organizations that can um, access their own spaces. So um, looking into you know, what, what is possible with the building and um, helping steward of that for the next generation. Um, and 
myself as a, a founder um, taking steps back um, and letting our staff and teams step forward and designing and writing out our collective leadership model. And we do have other spaces who, for the past couple of years, have asked us to help them and support them in starting their own places. And then there's places that have actually started based on our model. Um, so I'd love to have an opportunity to be able to go out and do more consulting. So there is a group in Staten Island. There's a group in Santa Rosa who started uh, Raices Collective based on our model. There's a, a place in Coachella right now um, that we're having conversations about opening up uh, a sole collective there. So I would love to have the opportunity to uh, step back from the day-to-day -day activities and travel out and see how we can share um, what we've done as a grassroots community-based organization um, to help other people who also want to use the arts uh, as a way of empowering their community. And then in terms of just overall what we have going on, I mean, I think this year one of the places we do plan on going um, is Art Basel. Um, so we're planning a showcase there at the end of the year. Um, and we have a showcase at South By. We've had a showcase for the last eight years. That's off by Southwest. Our Basel is in Switzerland, is that right? They have one in Miami. Miami, so okay, yeah. that's at the end of the year. Yeah, the end of the year. Um, and it, just to add something that you said earlier that reminds me about uh, South by Southwest, I recently got an award there um, for the work that we're doing in Sacramento um, from the director of South by Southwest and from a panel of Austinites. Is that how you say it? Austinites? Folks from Austin. So it's really interesting that we look, we're looking at that city, but we're folks in our community are getting awards from that city for the work that we're doing here. And I think oftentimes in Sacramento, we forget to value what we have happening here, that there's people in other big cities looking at us and trying to start models based on the work that we're doing in their cities. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's like kind of my number one rallying cry that I get frustrated about is that there's so much neat stuff here and it's just not... It's always kind of like some sort of like lofty idea on the outside instead of embracing what's cool here. Um, it's, I don't know what kind of inferiority complex that is, but it's, you know, gotta love Sacramento. Uh, so I'm actually, I mean, I'm also doing sort of some of the accession planning, like trying to figure out, you know, I think it's really scary when you found, found something because what happens when you're not there anymore? So that's something that we're starting to talk about too. I mean, now that it's been open for five years since the you know construction and building, buying the building, you know, is there something in place so that if I wasn't there, there could be somebody else that runs it? And, you know, because it can't be me for the rest of my life. I would like to think it's going to be an institution that just exists. Um, so that's you know on a bigger picture level something that we're working on. And then the, um, the project that I'm probably most excited about right now, uh, we are reproducing this um, book called The Slant Step Book. And it was originally published um, about four blocks from Verge at an art space that was across the street from the Fox and Goose. And this book has become this cult object that um, if you're lucky enough to find a copy of it, it's like $3,000. And so we've spent the last year and a half um, re, you know, making a meticulous reproduction of the book itself that's going to be accompanied by a volume of essays by these international um, 
curator, art essayist, historians, and it's examining the concept of why this object is still so important. And one of the historians, curators that are, um, one of the artists and uh, art historians and curators that's contributing to the book is working on an exhibition about that time period, 1969 in Sacramento, that's going to, or well, the region in general, not just Sacramento, but Northern California. Um, it's getting developed into a bigger installation at the Whitney. So that's like big picture. That's the thing that I'm the most excited about is this like, you know, book project that we're working on that will have a show that'll accompany it in September. Um, and then there's parts of that that are going to go on to bigger markets after we're done with it. And it's also, um, I just found out like in the last about month or so that it's going to have international distribution. So that's like kind of, I mean, again, getting that thing about celebrating what Sacramento has here. Um, you can't just make those sorts of things. That's something that we have that's an identity, you know, that I think is really cool. Well, I, I just want to say personally, but I think I speak for a lot of people, um, you both have a uh, uh, been fantastic in making Sacramento more appealing to our eyes and ears. So thank you very much for your efforts. Thank you for coming tonight to talk with us. It's been a great discussion. And uh, thank you, audience, for listening. And uh, we're going to wrap it up and uh, call it a night. But uh, thanks again. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreakers Q&A conversation was held on April 3rd at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. A special thanks to Sharon Wilson and Marcy Jose of Antiquity Midtown, and to our volunteers Rodrigo Ramirez, Danelle Brown, and Lale Muradpour for helping us put on this event together. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.